I've got a couple of prayer requests to throw in before we jump in. Judges chapter 5, we do have one verse left in that chapter. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, pastor's got a meeting at Mass General on Tuesday. We mentioned that before. I don't know if you've paid attention to the weather or depending on the weather app or channel you look at, we could have anywhere between this much rain and this much snow and no one knows what's happening in between. Pray that it doesn't snow. I would love another snow day, but for his sake, he needs to have those appointments. So pray for no snow. Can we do that? I know every teacher in the room just got mad at me and I'm sorry, but that one's important. And there's another one. I'm not going to say any names, but Pastor and I've talked about several of our friends, if you will, from the gym that we've made, gotten into relationships with and made friendships with over the last few years. Uh, Pastor's 25th anniversary is coming up at the end of May, and I have a whole group of them have promised me they're coming to church that day. Can you pray that that actually happens? Uh, a handful of them put it on their calendars yesterday. I watched them set notifications to make sure they get up on time because they don't do anything on Sundays. Um, but I told you, we, we've been Going out and handing out tracks and door-to-door soul-winning works. Never going to say it doesn't. But with some people, you have to play the long game. And God may be bringing that long game to an end. Please pray that that happens. It's, this is kind of huge. Um, so just th- thought I'd throw that out there. Judges chapter 5. Look at verse 31. I left one verse off last week. We kind of ended right at verse 30. I'm not going to recap most of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is kind of recapping chapter 4 with giving us some extra details of what happened here with Deborah and Barak. But Judges chapter 5, look at verse 31. It says, So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might, and the land had rest. 40 years. And from this point right here, Deborah, we're given credit that Deborah is the judge, she's the prophetess, she's in charge here for 40 years and everything kind of just goes well. If you haven't done the math yet, from the time of the death of Joshua, when all of these events start to take place, we're about 205 years or so after the death of Joshua. And if you go through from chapter 1 of Judges until this particular verse right here, you can actually add that up. We know that Othniel was a judge for 40 years, four decades. Ehud was a judge for how long? Does anybody remember? 80 years. And then Deborah, the land has rest for 40 years. So just those three people in general, we know for a fact, and Shamgar being a judge happened during the time of Ehud, again, according to the chronology of this particular book. So we've got right there 160 years. Then you add in the various captivities, adding into all of this, there was one for eight years and one for 17 years and one for 20 years. And then actually, if you read with me, chapter six, verse one, it says, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Counting this seven years, we are now 205 years removed from Joshua's lifetime and Israel's gone through now five sets of servitude back and forth couple of judges. And here's the thing. I actually had the opportunity to teach our junior high and high school uh, Bible class this week. Brother Carson was out at the Capitol Connection down in Washington, D.C. And I went through Judges chapter 4. And the thing I focused on for our young people was, can you do right when leadership isn't around? Can we as adults do right when leadership's not around? How many of us are hitting 85 miles an hour on the highway when we know there's no cops around? I I happen to have a little person in my car. She's eight, and she is the ultimate backseat driver. Daddy, isn't the speed limit 40? Shush. Hmm. 
Why? There's no, there's no police officers around. But are we doing right when leadership's not around? That's actually probably one of the key themes throughout the book of Judges. We don't tend to focus on that for the adults so much. We push that on the kids. You need to do right no matter who's around because God's always watching. Well, hey, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you need to do right no matter who's around because God's always watching. Israel immediately, this is every single time, read through this book, every single time, leadership steps to the side and they do whatever they want again. And and the Bible's now giving credit. Look at the children of Israel did evil. They've gone so far as they're not just doing wrong. God's straight up calling what they're doing evil. And this is almost immediately afterwards. Now, for Israel's sake, the Lord delivered them. This is still verse 1 of chapter 6. And the Lord delivered them. God is the one just like, all right, there's consequences to your sin. We all understand that concept. That's exactly what's happening here. God said, I'm the one true God. Worship me and me only. They don't do right, so God punishes them for their sin. In this particular instance, this is actually one of the shortest levels of servitude, if you will, during all of the book of Judges. It's only seven years. You realize some of the last ones were 17 years. They were 20 years. So this one is relatively short, but... Up until this point, I personally believe this one may have been one of the most destructive. While we studied chapter 5, Deborah mentioned that during the days of Shamgar and Ehud, that the people couldn't travel by highways. They traveled by byways. The cities were empty. Do you remember we talked about that last week? This, once we get into this next section here in chapter 6, it's considerably worse. Right, look at verse 2 with me. We're going to read verses 2 through 6 altogether. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they camped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they'll come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. This actually is a very unique thing here, because if you read through this and pay attention to the details, the Midianites did not stay and occupy the land for seven years. Read through this again. We're not going to read all of it in, in great detail, okay? But here's, look at when Israel had sown, that's verse 3, that the Midianites came up. Every year, the Israelites would plant. They'd start to grow crops. This is an agrarian culture. You had to plant crops to survive. The Midianites came in every year and wiped them out and then went home. And then they came back and then they went home. By the way, history proves that. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Bible just gives a generic children of the East in this particular instance. They were all nomadic people. Traveling was their thing. They were a nomadic group of people. And the Midianites, by the way, were one of the few cultures in the area that almost completely subsisted on using camels 
which was a little bit weird. Most other areas in this, or most other groups of people in this particular area had taken to raising and domesticating sheep and cattle and oxen and using the oxen to plow because they had actually put down roots. They had homes, they had farms. The Midianites did not. Why would they use a camel? Does anybody know? There's actually a couple of valid reasons to use a camel. Yeah, they use the hair to make tents. Water. The camels can go ridiculous distances without needing water. Okay, I have, I have a zoo of pets, if you did not know that. We're over 30 animals at this point. Some of them, the reason I have these pets is you have to do so little work. It's not even funny. One of my snakes eats once a month. Once he's full grown, he's going to eat once a quarter. Granted, he'll be eating a pig about that big, but it's once a quarter. I literally, we go on vacation. My dad will show up at the house twice during a week of vacation because two pets need fed during that time. That's great. I wish kids were like that. That would be awesome. Like, here, here's a cheese stick. See you next week. You know, I, okay. These camels were a lot easier to care for. They can also carry massive loads. They're very strong animals. And camels are also surprisingly fast. They can eclipse about 20 miles an hour and they can hold that speed for over 50 miles without stopping. That can outrun a horse, by the way, at that particular speed and distance. They're, they're one of the, as far as that goes. So the Midianites had capitalized on an animal that most others had not. Have you ever been around a camel? They're ginormous, right? Done right, they could be mildly terrifying. And this group of people came in, swept through, stole everything that the Israelites had. Then they went home. They're loaded up. They got all their food. According to the Bible, they've got all their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys. They've got everything. We got all your stuff. See you later. We'll be back next year. For seven years. But here's the problem. I sincerely doubt these people were getting an early text message. Hey, don't worry. Your Midianites are coming tomorrow. It's not Walmart grocery delivery. Okay, They weren't announcing it. They just showed up and ravaged, and the Bible gives us an indication of how far. Look at verse four, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza. This gives us the indication they're the children of the east. They're coming from the far side. Gaza is on the Mediterranean Sea. They're wiping out the entire nation of Israel of all of their food and supplies. They're wiping out everything. You ever seen like the National Geographic uh, or Discovery Channel videos of when like hordes of locusts come in and just devour everything? They can demolish whole fields in an afternoon. That's kind of the idea. And by the way, the Bible tells us that they came as grasshoppers for multitude, verse five. This is a huge collection of people and they're coming in kind of think like Nazis in World War II blitzkrieg style. They just come in, whoosh, Wipe in, take everything you've got, and go. So you're just left standing with nothing. This, by the way, this is a lot worse than just having to stay off the highway. This is a lot worse than just having to leave your city. Because look at where the children of Israel are living, according to verse 2. They made them dens, which are in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. The Israelites literally became cavemen for this time period. And not Neanderthals, not like evolutionary. We're talking literal cavemen. Why? Because it's the one place the Midianites couldn't attack. Camels don't do well climbing up mountains. Physically, they had a hard time getting there. 
And you can't really attack a cave very well because most caves have one entrance. So getting in and out, it's easier to hide some of your stuff. Are we okay? So this, by the way, I, it, again, I'm giving you my opinion. I think this may be one of the worst sets of captivity that Israel's been dropped into so far. Because they're left, you realize, they're left with nothing. Look at verse 6. And Israel was greatly impoverished. These people are at a point where we're not given any indication that there was a famine. We're not given any indication that there was starvation, but you have to imagine that there was some. If they're coming in and stealing all of their crops at harvest time, these people aren't doing well. This is the bare minimum of subsistence living for seven years. Most of us have never experienced anything quite to that level. This is awful here. And by the way, the Midianites are here for one reason and one reason only. Israel sinned, so God had to punish them. By the way, sin has an ability to do that for us. We all understand that God is the one that does the work. God's the one that does, gives the blessing. But from a human standpoint, we put a lot of work into our lives. If we live a life of sin, it will steal all of that hard work from us at some point. Look at the, look at the culture today. It's, we call it cancel culture. One action and that person's entire career is shut down. Why? Because sin has the ability to rob us of that. But for whatever reason, we only teach that part of the Bible. We only teach that to kids and teenagers. You need to do right, no matter who's around. We act like for us, that doesn't matter because we should know better. That's the problem. We should know better. We should do right no matter who's around. But do we? Just thought I'd throw that out there. I know it's quiet. I'm sorry. Look at verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. We saw that again in, uh, look at the end of verse number six. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. So God's repeating it here. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Most of the time when we have taught the story or the account of Gideon, we skip over these couple verses for whatever reason. We jump right into verse number 11 where we're introduced to Gideon uh, for the very first time and we talk about his bravery and his courage and his faith and all of those things and the, the fleece of Gideon and all. But we skip over this before God sent them a savior and a judge, he sent them a prophet to tell them what was wrong. How often has God done that in our lives? And here's the deal. This prophet, we don't know who he is. I looked through pages and pages worth of Jewish history this week trying to figure out if anybody has any clue to a name for this guy and no one does there is no indication who this prophet is but he he was sent by God we know that because look at verse 8 the Lord sent a prophet and by the way he starts off here with a really positive note he reminds them number one that God loves them he reminds them God loves them. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And he's reminding them of all the huge, amazing things God's done for them. He's reminding them of the love of God. The second thing here is he reminds them of the power of God. Brought you up from Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. 
and God brought them to their knees. They get over here. He del- verse 9, delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. And verse, the, halfway through verse 9, drave them out from before you and gave you their land. That's all of the book of Joshua condensed into two phrases. He's reminding them, God loves you and God's got the power to save you. But then he ends in verse 10 with reminding them of one other thing here. Look at verse 10. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God, Fear not the gods of the Amorites. Let me pause. That's not, hey, don't be afraid of their gods because their gods are powerful. No, no, no. Fear not means don't worship. I told you not to worship the gods. Read through your Bible. Fear and worship are used somewhat interchangeably back and forth. Fear the Lord your God. We're supposed to worship him, not be afraid of him. We're supposed to worship him. God said, I am the Lord your God. I'm your God You're not supposed to worship the gods of those around you in whose land ye dwell. And the end of verse 10 is the prophet's main message, but ye have not obeyed my voice. This prophet's entire job was to remind the people, you're the problem. You're the problem. You realize it's been 205 years By basic math, that's five generations, and they haven't figured out they're the problem yet. What that means is there's five generations of pretty terrible parenting going on. Five generations of that. It's not my problem. God, why would you do this to us? Why would you do this? By the way, Gideon gives us the idea that he was taught that this was God's fault. We'll get to that in just a minute. But this was all due to obedience. You realize obedience is like the most basic thing we teach any child? Sit still. By the way, when you you start, if you've ever had a toddler, teaching a toddler is about the same as teaching a puppy. Sit, stay, speak, roll over. And then it's, please stop. Stop speaking. Stop moving. You get where I'm going, okay? But here's the problem. We act like once we get to the adulthood level, it's my decision to make. My body, my choice. I get to decide what's right. I, the one I hate the most that's floating around right now is it's my truth. If it's truth, it's truth for all. Gravity affects all of us the same. I can refuse to believe in gravity, but it doesn't mean I have the ability to float at command. Albeit that'd be awesome. I'm a superhero nerd. I would love that. But I don't have control over that. And just because I may ignore truth doesn't make it not true. Are we okay? Uh, I watched this video this last week. One of the things that cracks me up about some people today is people that believe that we live on a flat earth. The Flat Earth Society, which is an actual group, by the way, tweeted out about a year and a half ago, we have flat earthers all around the globe. That is an official tweet. And I just, they, by the way, about a year ago, this made, this made like international news about a year ago, they spent over $200,000 on a specialized piece of equipment that they were, they stated would prove it's this specialized laser level that would prove once and for all that the earth is in fact flat. They live stream the whole thing on YouTube in 12 minutes in, they cut the live stream because it was unequivocal proof that the earth is in fact a globe. You can believe what you want to believe, but it's not your truth. If it's truth, it's always true. And obedience is always right. 
Because why? That's Bible truth. Children, obey your parents unto the Lord, for this is right. Aren't we the children of God? So we act like our kids have to obey us, but we don't have to obey God the Father? That'll mess with your head just a little bit. If you haven't noticed, I've been nailing some of this junk a little bit lately in this, in this class because if we don't get that right, how in the world do we expect all the kids in the other half of this building to get that right? Because if we're not going to live these truths, we're not going to obey. We can't tell them, you do this, but I do something else. That's trash, and that's why people leave church in droves. Do as I say, not as I do. They can see through that. Kids are smart. Some kids are smart, right? But even kids who may not be book smart can see right through a fake. Are we obeying? This prophet's entire job, by the way, could you imagine being this man? Midian is stealing all the things the people have. God raises up a prophet as the people, the children of Israel. You're expecting this prophet to come tell you, God's gonna deliver you. God will wipe out your enemies you realize he's done this over and over again. They're expecting this prophet to be the person similar to Deborah. Wasn't she a prophetess? Told the people and led the people into freedom. Are we okay? This prophet's whole job is, you're the problem, fix it before God helps you. Do you think he, that went over real well? Have you read the book of Jeremiah? That didn't go over very well. Have you read the first like three or four chapters of Ezekiel? He's literally sitting there over and over and over again telling the people, you're the problem. It is you, 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 and that guy over there. Those kinds of messages don't get received very well. But they had to get this message before they got deliverance. Because if we don't teach the lesson before the deliverance, is a lesson ever actually learned? This, by the way, is one of the only times in the book of Judges where God sent a voice like this to try to teach the people a lesson. Unfortunately, you can read through it. They didn't learn real well. We, we, we criticize the Israelites quite often. Oh man, stubborn, stiff-necked people. That's what the Bible says. The Bible calls them sheep and sheep are dumb. We're no different. We just happen to be in a different generation with different technology, but we're not any different. We choose to ignore exactly what we don't like. And that's from the littlest to the oldest, from the smartest to the dumbest, to the richest to the poorest, doesn't matter where you're at on that spectrum. We're all human. And it boils down to the very last portion of verse number 10 here. I'd highly advise that you underline that, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Are you and I obeying the voice of God in our life? By the way, that's a daily thing. That's not just a right now in church thing. That's a tomorrow morning thing. That's a tomorrow afternoon thing. That's a tomorrow night thing. And that will bleed over into every day until you get to meet him. But are we doing that? Again, I, I, I want, I'll, I'll move on after I say this one more time. If the group that's in this room, and I know I like to make fun of old people, I'm hitting that level sooner than I would like. But if we don't get this obedience to God, how in the world do we expect the next generation to make it? Because if we won't do it, how are they going to do it? 
just a simple thought right there. And I'm not going to stop here. We're going to keep moving forward. But God reminded them, and by the way, let me remind you, God loves you. God has the power to help you. That's exactly what the prophet reminded them of, but then he also let them know. He reminded them, you've got to obey. Do you realize how simple of a request that God's making of us? Obey. If you got that one request, all of what's in here is cake. If I choose, I'm going to obey God. There is not a single command in this Bible that's difficult. Why do I obey God? Because he loves me. He loves me so much, I can't even fully understand it. So what do I do? I obey him, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. But if you obey out of love, that's really easy. Obeying out of fear, obeying out of hatred, obeying out of spite eats you alive inside and you just despise every minute of life. But if you obey out of love, it's like, that's just easy stuff right there. That's just easy. Let's move on. All right, move on here. Look at verse 11 with me. And this is where we actually are introduced to Gideon for the first time. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in uh, Ophrah that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And I want to pause for just a second, all right? Just to give you an idea of where we're at. Most of the time, threshing wheat, and I know this has been discussed in the past, is almost always done near the top of a hill. Right? They would use the wind to drive the chaff, the lightest part of the wheat germ, away, and they would be left with the, the grain itself so that they could take that, grind that, turn that into flour, or whatever else that they may need at that moment. Gideon is doing this by a wine press. Typically, wine presses, so a threshing floor would be at the top of a hill, the wine press was almost always done at the bottom of the hill. Anybody know why? Nobody wanted to carry that many grapes up the hill, quite logically. And typically, they would also put the wine press somewhere near a stream or a creek so they had access to fresh water. Okay, that way they could clean up. Have you ever seen people use an old school like wine press with their feet and stuff like that? Washing up afterwards is very important. So he is hiding behind this wine press at the bottom of this hill, more than likely, he is down here hiding, trying to thresh wheat. Threshing wheat is a full body exercise. Get on YouTube this afternoon, look it up. There's all kinds of recreations and people showing you what this looks like. It's a full body exercise, usually a multi-person job. And he's over here hiding in a lower portion, trying to pull this off. Why? Hide it from the Midianites. Verse 11 directly tells us that. They were stealing any and all food. He's trying to sneak some food here for his family. Okay? I've heard over the past 30 years of my life that Gideon here is kind of a wimp and he's hiding. These guys are coming in every year at harvest time to steal all of their food. Is Gideon a wimp or is Gideon smart? I think Gideon's smart. And he's not a wimp because... The way the Bible directly addresses him at the end of verse 12 is thou mighty man of valor. God doesn't call somebody who's a wimp something other than what they are. So he's not a wimp. He's trying to make smart choices to take care of his family. Are we okay? I just wanted to throw that in there. Look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? told you, Gideon gives us some credit, 
that his generation's blaming God for this. If God's actually with us, then why is he letting all this happen? Have you ever been asked that question? If God's a good God, then why does he let bad things happen? Because sin still has consequences. Have you ever gotten in trouble before for something you did wrong? What? Why would that happen? Shouldn't the police officer just let you off because he knows you're a good person? No, you broke the law. That's how this works. Are we okay? So he's, he's asking here, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? That's an intriguing question. Gives us, by the way, an idea that Gideon knew. Gideon very likely may have listened to the prophet from the previous verses. All those miracles. He got us out of Egypt, the Red Sea, the manna. This stuff had been rehearsed in the ears of the people. By the way, they were commanded by God to continually rehearse that in the ears of the people. So gives us some indication at some point during Gideon's life, he's been taught that God is good. He's been taught that God loves him. But he's never seen, you realize, we're given an idea here. In his adult life, Gideon maybe has never seen God act. Have you ever thought about that? It's been seven years. The land had rest for 40 years at the end of Deborah. Deborah's, Deborah's reign is judged. Gideon's likely born sometime during that quiet time. And now seven years of servitude. He may have physically never seen God do anything before. This wasn't the era where we have, where if we want to talk to God, we have his book. We can read it and we can immediately talk to him. God, what does this mean? Can you help me? And he'll answer us. He didn't live in that era. For seven years, God hadn't talked to his people. He's never seen this. And that's an intriguing little note. I would underline that. I have that underlined in my Bible. Where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of? We talk to our teenagers and to our young people all the time. God can do amazing things. But you realize, especially those of us that are second generation Christians, some of us have never seen those moments. I'm just young enough, I don't remember the revivals of the 60s and 70s. I've heard of them. I can read stories. Thankfully, there's video footage and I can go back and watch some of that. But I didn't live through that. Some of you did and you saw that. You experienced some of that. I didn't. So what you saw as revival, I've never seen anything like that in my lifetime. Are we okay? So for me to believe that God can do that, that actually on my end takes a little more faith than it does for some of you. And I'm not saying you, I have more faith than you, but for some parts of the Christian life, it does take more work because I've not seen it. When I was a little kid, when dad started the church in Pennsylvania, 1991, correct? 1991, I was about six years old. We lived with my grandpa for a little while, and then mom <clears throat> couldn't stand that because that was not good. Uh, and we lived in fairly low-income housing. We didn't have a lot of money. And mom, I remember, had these yellow legal pads, and she would just write down the blessings God had given us. And sometimes they were minimal. I've talked about one of them in this class. We prayed for breakfast one morning, and we had no food, and God delivered. It was early Uber Eats from God delivered milk and cinnamon toast crunch, the greatest cereal that's ever been invented, okay? And ever since then, by the way, my sisters and I, that's our favorite cereal because we watched God do a miracle. I can tell my daughters about that, but I can honestly say I don't believe my daughters have ever been to a point where they've had to see something like that. So their faith that God can answer prayer like that is gonna be different than mine. They're gonna have to work a little harder at believing 
and having faith that God can answer prayer. Are we okay? So for Gideon's sake, I've heard about all of this. He directly addresses that, which our fathers told us of, but where are all these miracles? Why can't I see one of these miracles? Gideon's not a wimp. Gideon's not lacking faith. Faith would have been really difficult for him because he hasn't experienced any of that before. You realize the last seven years of Gideon's life have probably been pretty horrible. You ever been at a low point in your life and faith is hard to come by? And it's a struggle to believe that God is still good because life's been so hard and so rough. That's kind of where Gideon's at right now. Look at the end of verse number 13 and saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So he knows that God's there. He just may have never seen God work. But the key here is, go back to verse number 12. God calls him, thou mighty man of valor. God knows what's happening. Look at, was it uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Turn there with me real quick. It's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Possibly one of the more famous verses along these lines, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For, Lord, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So for us, our point of view, looking at Gideon, there's this dude hiding by a wine press, trying to thresh some wheat. That looks like a wimpy, cowardly guy. God says, no, 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 that's a mighty man of valor. Why? He's being smart about trying to get food to take care of his family, number one. And number two, he's got some faith in here we get from verse 13. His faith just hadn't become sight yet. He hadn't seen God work. He's not saying God doesn't work. He's acknowledging God's done amazing things for us. But where are the miracles? When we're at our very lowest and we don't think that God's still there, and don't tell me you've never come to that point because every human being that served the Lord for any length of time has come to that point where you think, is any of this even real? And you're not questioning God. You're not necessarily questioning your faith. You're just so distraught. You're so worn out. You're so tired. You're so weak. That is any of this even real? Where be all his miracles? It's not that you don't believe anymore. It's just, God, I need to see one. I need something to get me through this. He's begging God here, where are all the miracles? We need something. We'll come to find out next week, Gideon is part of that miracle. And God does some amazing things through him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything that you've done.